Thank you very much for that, Nick. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody at home. I trust you guys had a really good week. It's been very warm. As you can see, I've gotten a little bit darker from being out in the sun. So, um, yeah, it's wonderful to have you all here today. I want to start off with something, though. What do you think of when you hear certain names? For example, if I was to say Jono, Big Jono, what would you think of? What would be something you would describe Big Jono as? Like, it could be like the games master. I could say like oh, you know, basketball player. It could be uh, you know, somewhat funny or anything like that. That could be something, some of the things. What about Nick? I mentioned Nick, who was up here MC. It could be like bad parenting. It could be uh, anything. Like, <laughs> it could be, could be anything like that, okay? Um, if I say Joe, like, what do you think of? And, and most things, it's like you know, bald head, large, thing, large, large guy, dark, dark skin. I don't know. You always, always associate various things. If I was to give to you some biblical names, what are some of the things that come to mind? For example, if I was to say to you, Samson, what are some of the things that come to mind? It'd be like long hair, supernatural strength. Uh, I would add a couple more on that, like maybe somewhat carnal, uh, immature. Maybe those are some of the descriptions that you would use. If I was to say to you the names Hymenaeus and Alexander, for those of you who don't know, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, what are some of the thoughts that might come to mind? In chapter 1 verse 20, you read about these guys who have a shipwrecked faith. Uh, they were blasphemers. They were people that Paul handed over to Satan. If I was to mention to you the name Diotrephes from 3 John 9, I would associate things like that, maybe an arrogant leader or a self-centered leader. Uh, somebody that wanted power. Lastly, what about the name Demas? What are some of the thoughts that come to the mind when you think of the word Demas, or the name Demas? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we find out that he is someone who forsook the faith due to his love for this present world. The past couple of weeks, we've had messages that highlighted for me a couple of very important truths. One, how easy it is for people, including myself, to fall away from the Lord, to give in to whatever it might be and find ourselves distant from him. And two, how much I need the Lord in my life, how much I need to cling to him, to hold to him, to enable him to take control in my life. You see, today's message follows a similar theme as we've had over the past couple of weeks, but I'd like to say with a different emphasis. Uh, the theme, uh, as it is, of getting ourselves into trouble is one side of it, but I want to focus more on the fact of what God is doing to bring us out of that state of apathy, out of that state of spiritual lethargy, and bring us back to himself. And so as we look at the scriptures today, I'm praying that we will be able to glean God's truths from the scriptures and see how they apply to us. Thus, I'm going to look at a tale of what I call a tale of two men, or more accurately, what these two men represent. And prayerfully, these two truths, we can glean, sorry, this tale of these two men, we can glean truths that we can apply and use, or that God can use in each of our lives. Gleaning is all about digging in and, 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 and taking out things that are worthwhile. We are told within Proverbs 2 how we are to search the scriptures. Search as if they're hidden, like treasures, like, like hidden gold. 
That's what I want us to be able to do today as we glean from God's truth this morning. So if you want to bow your heads, we'll open a word of prayer and let's look at the scriptures together. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and for your love and for your mercy and for your grace that you've bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I know that we have not been the most faithful of people and yet you still reveal yourself to us with a love that cannot be comprehended, with a love that exceeds all that surrounds us. And so I pray that you will open our eyes to see the beauty of who you are, to see the greatness of your love toward us. And Father, that we might submit to your will and to your desire and to your word this morning. Please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So the names I mentioned earlier, can anyone tell me what the names were? Give me the first name. Samson, second names, two of them. John Winnick, Hymenaeus and Alexander. The third name was Diotrephes. And the last one, Demas. So these names that I mentioned to you earlier were all various people who for various really reasons missed out on living a victorious life for the person of Jesus Christ. They missed out on an intimate relationship with the Lord who invites us to an intimate relationship with him. Thus, as we look at this tale of two men who are today Abram and Lot, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 13 and chapter 14. Abram and Lot, he hadn't been called Abraham yet. Abram and Lot, an uncle and a nephew. A man who walked close with God and a man who didn't walk as close to God. And in their story, I want us to look at some factors that can contribute to us in falling away that can result in us losing our vision or to be swept away from the things of God, but also what is done to bring us back to himself, to bring those who fell back again. So the first thing we're going to look at today is what I like to call the wrong priorities. Turn to Genesis 13. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to sort of go through it. So if you've got your Bibles, please follow along with me. So in Genesis 13, we read how God has blessed Abram abundantly. And by association, Lot finds himself blessed abundantly too. Look at that in verse 5. As their wealth and their possessions and their flocks grow, so too does the friction between their prospective families. I'm told in verse 7 of chapter 13 that quarrels arise between the herders of their prospective flocks. Abram's solution? He says it's time to part ways. Now, like in many relationships, there can be friction that arises. But instead of manipulating the situation or Abram pulling rank over his nephew or, or dominating him by force, Abraham does something here, which I think we can all learn from. Abram submits humbly in the situation and hands the advantage over to Lot by allowing Lot to make the first pick. You look at that in verses 8 and 9. He basically says to, to Lot, look, We've got all this land here. You choose where you want to go. We've got to part ways. Because we're family, we've got to part ways. You make your choice. 
in doing this, Abram does something which I think is really cool. One commentator put it this way. Abram was entrusting his direction and the calling God had placed on his life directly in the Lord's hands. It was the epitome of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, whereby for Abram, he was trusting in the Lord with all his heart and not leaning to his own understanding. He acknowledged God in all his ways so God could then in turn direct his paths. And that's what happens here. Because we read in Genesis 12, the calling that God places on Abram's life, and he's just saying, okay, Lord, if you want me to fulfill that, we'll go with that. And he gives the choice over to Lot. In comparison, we look at Lot. And we read this in verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abram gives Lot the choice. Lot looks around and what does he see? We see what he saw. He looks around and he saw what was pleasant to his eyes. He saw what also could meet his need. Do you see a similarity here to another person that saw something pleasant to the eye and saw that it was good for food and that it was able to make one wise? You look in Genesis 3, that's what Eve does. The Bible calls this the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It marked that what Lot saw as a priority was the possession of something that could meet his needs, something that could meet or sustain his own personal and physical comforts. He saw that as a priority. I mean, honestly, it's like when you give a child the choice and I've done this in the past, and you've probably done this as well, where you take some coins for a young child, and you take a 50-cent piece, and you take a $2 coin, and you hold it in front of a child and say, which one do you want? And for a child, they look, and they see the big coin and the little gold coin, and more often than not, they take the 50-cent piece, not realizing it is less worth, it is worth less in value. Why? Because it's what they see. They, that looks good, it looks big, it looks pretty, therefore it must be beneficial to me. And then what happens? They take it, and then they miss out on $1.50. <laughs> they miss out on a And you don't mind that, that's fine. Essentially, this is what's happening with Lot. Lot's looking, he sees something that will benefit him. It'll make me comfortable. The land is well watered, the land provides much, I'll be able to sustain myself and all my flocks there. But if this is all we're looking at, then what happens is we'll find our vision limited. We will not see the bigger picture, specifically see God's picture, because our vision becomes severely impaired. That's what takes place. How many of us, for the sake of personal comforts, or in order to live a life free of problems, have we forsaken vital aspects of our relationship with Jesus because something else looked better? How many of us have missed out on that $1.50? How many of us have taken a higher position at work or a position that has perks, but then that ends up taking time away from my wife and my children? How many of us have valued the acceptance of man and failed to stand up for Jesus because it's comfortable, 
instead of making a stand for him, a stand for righteousness and a stand for the things of God when we are given the option. How many of us have chosen to do things, book things, or attend things that directly clash with the things of God or clash with us spending time in his word or clash with us being in prayer with him or or clash with the, the things that God values merely because there's something else that has taken our priorities away from him. How many of us have looked at the bright, shiny thing for something temporal and missed out on $1.50 of the eternal? This is something that Lot does here. Lot had made a choice to favor the temporary here and now over what could be more beneficial to him in eternity. How many of us have justified things by saying, well, God is forgiving, he'll understand? Or we've discarded the realities of Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, where Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Think about that for a second. What good is it if I get the new position, if I have personal entertainment, if I have this personal comfort or personal popularity, yet forfeit his own soul? where I forfeit my time in the word with him, where I forfeit this relationship with him who died for me, where I forfeit the obedience to his spirit or the sensitivity to his leading. In verse 37 of Mark 8 it says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Or in other words, what things of eternal value are we willing to give up for the sake of some temporal satisfaction and contentment? And while you may question my reasoning for Lot's decision, it is confirmed by what we read or by what is gained in connection to the plains of Jordan that he sees. We read this in verses 11 to 13. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So yes, he saw plains that were well watered. that were like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. But then we read that it is near the city of Sodom. He decided to place himself due to his priorities and a position that I would consider to be wrong. And a wrong position in Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. See, for many of us, when we make choices, when we make the choices that we do, we fail to see the risks or the traps that may arise. Or we may even see the traps and the risks and completely ignore them. This is a progression. This is a progression that can take place in each of our lives. I've I've noticed this in life, that more often than not, when people fall away, when people have turned their backs on the things of God, it's never an instant, just like that, bang. It's a progression. 
one thing after the next, one compromise after another compromise, one little thing discarded and another little thing discarded, and it progresses. It's much like if you turn to Psalm 1 verse 1, where we read, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Now, when you read in Psalm 1, you read about this progression. This is a progression that Lot initiates here, and it's a progression that each of us sort of initiate as well by placing ourselves in a wrong position because as we see here, we have Lot who once walked in the counsel of the godly, Abram. Now he is standing in the way of sinners by placing himself near the cities of Sodom. And as we read in chapter 14, we find that he placed himself in the seat of the scornful. For you read in verses in chapter 13, verse 12, that Lot pitched himself near Sodom. But in this chapter, in chapter 14, you see that his choice to be near Sodom also gave him opportunity to be involved with Sodom. And that that involvement involved the consequences of that city. We read in chapter 14, verse 1, about four kings the king of Shinar, Elasa, Elam and Goyim in 14.1, and they go to war with the kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim, and Zoar in 14.2. In verses 3 through to 11, we read of the strategies and the happenings that take place, resulting, we are told, in the following in verses 11 and 12. We read how all the goods and all the food was carried along with Aram's nephew Lot and his possessions. Verse 12 says this, since he was living in Sodom. That's the difference. He had gone from being near Sodom, standing in the way of sinners, to now living in Sodom, sitting in the seat of the scornful. For whatever reason, be it convenience, be it desire, or be it curiosity, Lot left the plains of Jordan and chose to reside in the city where wickedness was abundant. And that decision caused him to be swept up with the issues, swept up with the battles, swept up with the problems that he placed himself in the very middle of. I have heard and I have seen many believers in the 30 odd years that I have been a believer, I've heard many believers place themselves in positions whereby they are continually tempted or they're continually challenged to compromise their stand for the things of God, or they are, like Samson, playing with situations that could be, they place themselves in a way that could lead them down a path of giving in to sinful desires. But something has to be said here. If you position yourselves in such a way, the result is the consequence The result is the consequence of a long sequence of compromises, of justifications, of willing ignorance, thinking you can handle such things. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, we read this. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? I can tell you this, no. No. You play with stuff. You play with fire, you'll get burned. You you walk on hot coals, you'll get scorched. I I do like how, because in in Fiji they do a lot of 
walking on hot coals. And though their feet don't get burned, they do get scorched. You don't, you don't get away being harm-free. They, they actually did it on Mythbusters, where they said, why can they walk on hot coals? Wood, apparently wood takes at least one second for it to actually burn while it's burned as a hot coal. And that's why you could walk over it quite quickly. And Adam Savage from the Mythbusters actually did this. But his feet were scorched. That's the reality. You can't play with sin and think that you'll get away with it. And it's why in second, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, in the King James, I always like this version, Wherefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Proverbs talks that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You can't play with things. You can't put yourself in such a situation and think that you can get away with it. David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 began with David being in the wrong position. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time that involved him giving into adultery. Samson's defeat by Delilah in Judges 16 came from him continually placing himself in the wrong position. He was playing games with his giftings and with the calling God placed on his life. He was playing at being a judge as opposed to being faithful to what God had called him to be. Jonah's humbling in the book of Jonah came by God, sorry, came by Jonah placing himself in the wrong position that was in complete contradiction to what God had called him to do. And it was this progression of placing himself into a wrong position time and time again that results in his or in each of these guys' failures. Now, I know all my illustrations are sport illustrations. That's because I like playing sport. But you're in the wrong position in any game. Your game, your team misses out. As as, as the position that I played as as a breakaway, as a number seven in rugby, if I'm in the wrong position, I let the team down. I know for Jono, who plays basketball in the wrong position at the wrong time, then the team misses out. Actually, that, that's just the reality of it, but it happens in life as well. You're in the wrong position. If you place yourself in the wrong position, you end up missing out. And we see the same principle here, biblically speaking. If you look at James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, we read this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Here's the progression. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. That's that progression. And it starts, not by what God does, but by why we do, and where we position ourselves, especially in relation to God. For us, much of our difficulty in our walk with Jesus comes from us, placing ourselves in the wrong position. Our lack of passion for the things of God because we have positioned ourselves away from him. Over my right shoulder here is the cross. And more often than not, what we do, metaphorically speaking, is have our back to the cross. As opposed to looking unto him who is the author and perfecter of our faith, we position ourselves in the wrong way away from him. Our disappointments have positioned us toward doubt because we didn't have the right perspective on our situation. 
Our loss of joy has resulted from us positioning ourselves to enjoy the world's delicacies instead of feasting at the Lord's table. And like Lot, before we know it, we are swept away. We are swept up by these things and find ourselves trapped or find ourselves frustrated or find ourselves distant from the Lord, living a life that we know is supposed to be different. That we know is supposed to be an abundant, joyful, rejoicing life in the person of Jesus Christ. Which is what makes what I call this righteous rescue so encouraging and so, so compelling. In Genesis 14, 13 to 17, we read this. Actually, I won't read it yet. Because you see, last week, last week Martin shared about Asaph, or Asaph as he pronounced it. And who was in the temple of the Lord. And as when he was in the temple of the Lord, what happened? His perspective changed. The week before, we looked at Habakkuk and how Habakkuk asked God to revive the work within him because he was humbled at the ways and at the workings of God. In verses 13 to 17 of chapter 14, news reaches Abram regarding his nephew and that he had been taken captive by these kings. Was that the consequence of Lot's decisions? Yeah. Was it to be expected for the choices that Lot made? Oh, definitely. But Abram doesn't let him stay there. Abram doesn't go, well, you deserve that. See you later. No, no, he doesn't let him stay there. Abram doesn't leave him to suffer, for want of a better word, this deserved result. Once news reaches Abram, he springs into action and makes a concerted effort to bring back his nephew into the freedom that he originally had, back into the place that Lot had chosen to be. In verses 13 to 17, we read this. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Anir all of whom were allied with Abram. Verse 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Verse 16, sorry. He pursued all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and all the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedolamah, so probably about that pronunciation, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now, after this, we read of Abram's meeting with Melchizedek, a dialogue with the king of Sodom, and Abram's integrity as he honors the Lord God in verse 22 of that chapter. Now, the fact that Lot chose to go back to Sodom after this, re- this rescue is irrelevant. The focus of, is, is on what Abram did. Abram sought to free his family. He gathered the forces, we talk about the strategy that's used, the sacrifices given, and the acknowledgements of the Lord God that he had made. Everything in this part here is about the heart of Abram to rescue his nephew from captivity. The righteous rescue. And in reading this, 
my heart is uplifted because it is an image of what God the Father has done for me and seeks to do for me. He has already made me his child when he, by his grace, came as a man born of a virgin and every way tempted as we are, yet without sin, according to Hebrews 4.15, who then died on a cross for our sins and rose again the third day, and that who those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So as Lot left with Abram and received much blessing, we too have left the land of this world and received abundant life in Christ. Have we received eternal security? And we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We've basically been given this new life as citizens of heaven. But like Lot, we make choices that have drawn us away from the Lord that we have prioritized the wrong things, that we have positioned ourselves in the wrong way, that has caused us to be swept away with the ungodly actions and our interests in temporary worldly pleasures that surround us. But that is not where the Lord wants us to remain. And I don't think that's where we want to remain either. You see, the Lord has gone through the greatest of lengths to make us his child. Do you think then he will just abandon us when we fall? Do you think then he'll just leave us to our own devices if we walk away or if we turn our back or if we fall into sin? No, because we read in Romans, he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also give us all things? Will he leave us to our own devices? No, he won't. He went through the greatest of lengths to make you his child, to make you a new creation. Will we fail? Yes. Do we fall into the situation where we feel frustrated? Yes, but he doesn't want us to stay there. In this, I want want to say this clearly, in our funk, of sin that we can find ourselves in or that lethargic weariness that has arisen inside of us. As it, as it's, come, it's come from us looking at the Lord as a means to an end, not as a Messiah to be known. It is looking at our calling as a job to be done, not as a privilege that has been bestowed. We see... The the blessedness of our heavenly destination as something in the future to be attained, forgetting that the kingdom of God dwells within us in the person of Christ. Much like Lot in captivity or the questioning of Habakkuk, just because we cannot see what is taking place, or just because we are so consumed with our own issues or with our own circumstances or with our own personal comforts does not mean that God is inactive. The Lord in his grace has rallied together around him all that we need to live victoriously as his child. He has given us his spirit to remind us continually that we are his son and daughter. What does Romans 8.16 say? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
He's given us his word by which we know and live the very mind of Christ. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Pardon me. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given us his people by which we can support each other in serving him. First Corinthians chapter 2. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. His promises by which our faith and confidence in him grows, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. The fact that the battle is the Lord's means that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Guaranteed victory because the Lord is victorious. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the righteous rescue that the Lord Jesus has manifest toward us. That we don't have to remain in apathy. We don't have to remain in weariness. That we don't have to remain in frustration. That he has given us all that we need to be delivered from such things and then to walk and live in those things. That's what's really exciting. See, all this was done to rescue us from that state of apathy, to bring us back to himself. And you want to know what our part is in this rescue? You want to know what the plan is for us and how we can play a role in this that would be different to Lot who chose to go back to Sodom? Actually, it was really interesting when you read about this because while he's in Sodom, you'll notice that God doesn't speak to Lot about the coming judgment in Genesis 18. Abram intercedes on his behalf. Abram basically intercedes with God on behalf of his nephew and then God moves to deliver him from that. This is an emphasis. This is a truth that's gleaned right now. The importance of prayer for your brothers and sisters. The importance of praying on behalf of those who have fallen away or fallen into the state of apathy or, 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 or just of, of, of lethargy, spiritually speaking. That we can play the role of Abram and pray for those that God might deliver them from their state of, it may be apostasy, from their state of, luke, of lukewarmness. That's the part that we can play. We can play a part in the righteous rescue of those that have fallen away. But you know what we can do? We can repent. It's a very old-fashioned word. It's often referred to like when you have fanatics, especially in... TV programs and movies, repent, repent. Well, that's the role that we play. Repent. Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful quote. He says, learn this lesson, not to trust Christ because you repent, but trust Christ to make you repent. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, but to come to him that he may give you a broken heart. Not to come to him because you are fit to come, but to come to him because you are unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. It emphasizes the fact that we need him to stir our hearts. We need him 
to move us. We need him to rescue us from our situation, from our circumstance. While Lot was captive, he had no idea that Abram was active in delivering him from that captivity. Our God is active in wanting to deliver us from our captivity, from our weariness, from our apathy, from our spiritual tiredness. And that starts for us to repent, to repent of the wrong prioritizing, to repent of the wrong positioning, to repent of the wrong perceptions of God, to repent of our own personal arrogance, which I am guilty of, to repent of the self-justifying, self-accommodating, self-relying mindset that I can have, to repent of my laziness and to consecrate myself to the Lord Jesus, to be crucified with Christ and live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself more for me, as it talks about in Galatians 2.20. That is the tale of, men, tale of two men that I pray we can learn from. That whilst we might have the wrong, priority, the wrong priorities, which points to what we value, and whilst we can put ourselves in the wrong position, which points to what we'll do, never take our eyes off the righteous rescue that points to what the Lord has done and is doing to provide for us liberation from the places that we have placed ourselves in. That's exciting. Especially with this new year that lies ahead. That's what we get to look forward to. But it starts, it starts with us repenting. This is where each of you, and including myself, need to come before God and ask him to talk with him. If we have prioritized the wrong things, that God will reveal that to us. That if we have placed ourselves in the wrong position, that God will reveal that to us. And that we will have our senses, our spiritual senses, awakened in order to recognize the righteous steps that he has taken to rescue us from the state of spiritual blah. So with that, brothers and sisters, I want to ask my sister Alison and my brother Adrian to come forward. We're going to close in a song, and I'll close in prayer after that. But as we sing, let this be the cry of our hearts as we cry out to our God to rescue us. Thanks, sister. Lord, all I am is yours. 
Father, our hearts cry out to you now. We cry for you to come to our rescue, to deliver us from our desires of this world, to deliver us from our own spiritual weariness and our own spiritual apathy, deliver us from our own lukewarmness. We thank you that you came to our rescue and delivered us from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and soon to be sin's presence. And Lord, whilst we walk on in the newness of life that you have granted us in your Son, I pray that if we have prioritized things other than you, if we have positioned ourselves outside of your will, that you will rescue us. Father, we thank you that you are involved with each and every one of our lives. You have come to give us life and life in its abundance. And I pray that we will submit to your will, that we will obey your word, and we will be led and prompted by your spirit. We ask for you to dismiss us now. Glorify yourself in your church. Glorify yourself through your people. Glorify yourself that the world may see and know that you are God. And we ask this all in the name of the mighty Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you very much for that, brothers and sisters. Thank you very much, everybody at home.